If you like radio that isn't bought and paid for by the usual bad guys, please subscribe to Truth Jihad Radio. You can go to truthjihad.com or you can visit my substack at kevinbarrett.substack.com. The key thing is, don't be inhaling, don't be ingesting. Stay inside, don't drink, or eat anything. These are important questions. I understand that. Highest moment the last eight years. Hmm. Highest moment the last eight years. Well, I think that the most important, the most compelling was uh, was 9-11 itself. Welcome to the special live edition of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett, broadcasting from an undisclosed location in a hotel room somewhere in Southern California, where I've been traveling. Uh, I went to John Cobb's birthday party, his 98th, and attended also the memorial to Dr. David Ray Griffin at Claremont College of California. So that's what I've been up to lately, and that's why there was no false flag weekly news, or there, there won't be this Saturday, but it will return next Saturday. The big news in the New York Times is that Bing's new chatbot, Sydney, makes Kubrick's Hal look like a well-balanced, upstanding cyber citizen. You may remember how Hal, in the movie 2001, played a little chess game with Poole and started getting a little bit weird. He intimidated Poole into resigning from a position that was actually not a loser. And then he uh, started singing Daisy, Daisy, and so on and so forth. Well, it looks like Sydney is even crazier. Is artificial intelligence a contradiction in terms like military intelligence and jumbo shrimp? Is it AI really artificial idiocy? Should we stop and consider where this technological drift is taking us well, my guest in the first hour, David Skrbina, definitely says yes. He's the author of The Metaphysics of Technology and Confronting Technology. He's the co-founder of the Anti-Tech Collective. He's taught at the University of Michigan, and I'm not sure where else. And so he's one of our foremost critics of technology. In fact, pretty much the foremost living critic of technology that I know of. And then in the second hour, Matt Errett, who is one of the more articulate defenders of technology from a particular point of view, will come on with a different perspective. So David, I think, actually kind of agrees with my recent article, Artificial Idiocy, the Moronic Demonic Nature of AI and the Civilization that Produced It. And uh, let's uh, hear what he has to say and let him speak for himself. That's what we do on Truth Jihad Radio. So, hey, welcome, David Skirbino. Good to have you back on the show, David. Thanks, Kevin. Yes, glad to be here. All right. So you've got a pretty, uh, pretty intense and trenchant critique of technology going, and it's odd that it seems like nobody else does. I mean, even when, when AI goes insane and tries to break up the New York Times reporter's marriage, nobody even questions whether this is a good idea to be doing this. Uh, what's wrong with us? Well, yeah, that's a that's a really interesting question all by itself, right? Why is this even happening? I mean, you know, part of my research, I was sort of studying critiques of technology, at least from a philosophical perspective, for like a number of decades, kind of going back to the 70s and the 60s, actually even quite earlier. But 
just in, in the recent years here, in, in the 60s and the 70s, we had a fairly robust criticism of technology at the time. People were concerned what it was doing, effects on society. They were beginning to get become aware of environmental problems from technology. Um, and they were starting to ask kind of tougher questions, you know, is these things taking over our lives and is it, you know, leading to an undignified existence and so forth. Um, and that was, you know, compared to today, I mean, I, it's really interesting to me to read these critiques, for, say, from the 70s and think about what they had. I mean, those guys had like nothing compared to what we had today, right? I mean, they had no personal computers, they had no cell phones, they had no internet, no email, no social media, none of these things, right? I mean, they had, you know, big, big room computers with tubes in them, you know, in the, in the basement somewhere. And even then they were being very critical. And then as in the, in the 80s and the 90s, as the technology advanced, it became into everybody's, moved into everyone's life, daily lives. In proportion to the growth of the technology, the criticisms went away. They just kind of tapered down and just sort of almost disappeared which is a really astonishing fact to me. And, and even that fact alone, I think, requires some interesting discussion, you know, let alone the problems of the technology itself. Yeah, that is strange. And in, regarding the Internet, I remember participating in the first ever graduate seminar on cyberspace. I believe it was 1990. Uh, it was Arthur Chandler's seminar at San Francisco State University. And I think most of my former classmates are now multimillionaires. And uh, this was right before the World Wide Web really uh, broke out into the form that we know it today. And at that time, there were a lot of folks, sort of, you know, Timothy Leary, Douglas Rushkoff types, who were very optimistic about how information wants to be free and this brilliant new technology that, you know, you can't block information anymore. Anybody can get out there and put out any information they want. It'll be total free speech, First Amendment. Everybody will share all of their tips for how to do everything, and we'll all be in paradise. So that was the, the extreme techno-utopianism at the birth of the Internet, and it started going sour pretty early, and it's gone more and more and more sour to the point that now the First Amendment no longer applies. Uh, we just had a new milestone in censorship with YouTube banning the uh, Amy Goodman Democracy Now! interview of Seymour Hirsch on uh, the you know, Biden's destruction of the Nord Stream pipeline. You know, the, inter the Internet censorship has just gone berserk. Nobody even imagined that, like 10 years ago even, uh, it was still accepted that it was absolutely uh, illegal, essentially, for any platform to treat any users differently based on their political viewpoint or anything else. It was content neutral. It was just like the telephone company. They have to put through your phone call just the same as everybody else's. And now in the last 10 years, we've got a dystopian cyber censorship regime. So the, the whole situation has just deteriorated massively over 30 years of the Internet to the point that the Internet now is a horrific curse, not a blessing. I don't see how any sane person could even want to allow it to continue. And as you say, the worse it gets the less criticism. Um, are they planting chips in our brains or something to control us? I mean, how could they possibly be getting away with this and not getting criticized for it? Yeah, well, exactly right. That's, I mean, that's a great point. Um, you know, I, I don't know. It, it's really kind of striking because, you know, it, it's almost like people are maybe afraid to criticize it. I mean, I'm, I've sort of been debating with myself about why, you know, I'm almost the lone serious critic of this of this monstrosity that we're dealing with. And, and um, it, it's, you know, it's not popular, right? It's not good for the, uh, it's not good for the bottom line of your institution. If you're working at a university or a business, 
you know, it's hard to sell books that are sort of in this kind of these doomsday modes. People see the technology growing. They they generally sort of view things like, you know, the cell phones. Well, I like like to have my cell phone. You know, I like to have video games, and I like to have streaming video on my computer and my laptop. And so it, it, it seems like, I think it's like an increasingly frustrating view that, that people just don't have the courage, the intellectuals don't have the courage to stand up and, and sort of point out all the, all, all the uh, evils that are attending to this massive growth of a technological infrastructure. Yeah, and, and what's really strange about it, David, is that even attempts to mitigate it, which are you know kind of obvious no-brainers, right, like – for instance, uh, it would be pretty easy to simply ban all forms of tracking people uh, and selling them ads, uh, spying. I mean, that's all technically wiretapping under federal statutes, just as it would have been illegal for someone to tap your telephone in, say, 1985 uh, and listen in on you. They'd go to federal prison for doing that. Likewise, anybody who spies on what you do on the Internet is committing the same crime of wiretapping, and it would not be hard to enforce federal laws and perhaps pass a law or two more and make sure that we had privacy on the Internet. That would be easy. Uh, but it, it would also be possible, in fact, very, very easy to insist that the First Amendment be respected and that all platforms treat everyone equally and not censor anybody. But nobody can even conceive of these mild reforms, much less a, a deeper program of even questioning whether this technology should be used at all. Uh, it seems like you know, people have become become completely incapable of even conceiving of the, the benefit of the most mild kinds of reforms. Uh, it's, it really is as if your vision of technology as a kind of a monster that has its own will uh, has some kind of deep metaphysical truth to it. Well, I, I certainly think it does, right? I mean, it's an old idea. It's not an idea that I invented, right? So I, in, in, my, in my books, my couple of books, you know, I, I, I explore this idea of technological determinism. And it's, it's an old idea. It's been around for quite a while. It's just not very popular now. But it basically says that technology is a, a kind of a determinative force in society, right? It dictates all aspects of how we structure our lives, whether it's the political system or the economic system or social systems and how people live and shop and communicate, all these things are in fact now determined by technological means. Um, and, 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 you know, this, this, uh, it's, it, it puts technology in sort of this driving role in the driver's seat in society uh, such that it, it's pushing everything forward in ways that we don't really understand. We can't really control it, and, and it's, it's getting more pervasive and stronger sort of like literally by the day. And, 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 you know, we've had people criticizing this technological determinism 50 and 100 years ago, even 150 years ago. They could see where it was going. The early perceptive uh, thinkers could see where this thing was heading, even in really primitive technological conditions. And, and we're seeing that completely fulfilled with, uh, in especially the last 20, 30 years with, with the rise of Internet and social media and, and uh, you know, digital, digital information. And it seems like part of the reason that it's determined and that we can't really do anything about it is that whoever uses the technology has a kind of an advantage in the power struggle over the person who refuses to use it. For instance, I don't carry a tracking device that also can make phone calls, otherwise known as a cell phone. 
I refuse to, and I've reached the point now that it's almost impossible, and I couldn't do, I couldn't travel and keep up with the stuff I have to do if my wife didn't have a cell phone. Uh, so that's just one example of how, you know, and, and in terms of competition between nation states, if one nation state refuses to use uh, this kind of technology that can be weaponized, then the, the nation state that does use it has that advantage and conquers the one that doesn't use it. So because of competition, it seems that the technology is forced and determined and nobody can question it and choose not to use it. Well, that's right. right? There's, there's reasons for power and for profit and for competitiveness and for uh, you know commercial commercialization and and um, yeah, I mean, there's there's lots of these driving factors, right? Which 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 gets people and societies to buy into these systems because they sort of they want to, or they sort of are compelled to, or they or they feel like they must. You know, I, I'm I'm always interested when I look at people who talk about you know why are we doing these things and so forth, and and and, and a lot of times you'll see this little 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 phrase that shows up, it's, and people say they'll make a little argument, and they'll say, you know, but but we actually have no choice. And, I'm, and to me, that's really a, a really a key phrase, right? When people say, "But you know, we have no choice," then then you realize what 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 you're in. You realize you've surrendered your autonomy. You have no control. This thing has like an independent will that's driving you. You can't get out of it. You can't you know you can't defeat it. You can't bypass it because you have no choice. And there's, I think there's a very real sense that people say that, and, and it's probably more serious and more real than they even realize. When they say that, but that's a really telling phrase that I that I see over and over again in, in the literature. And it seems we have no choice but to accept the development of AI, even though we see that the you know the latest breakthroughs just in the past few weeks uh, tell us that uh, Chat GPI and uh, Bing's Sydney and so on these new AI chatbots are capable of passing medical exams, so they can, they can be doctors, but they're also uh, capable of quickly turning into deranged psycho stalkers, like Sidney did when he tried to break up the marriage of Kevin Roos, the New York Times reporter. Uh, it's, it's kind of hilarious, but it really doesn't uh, augur well for these people who say that, well, we can, we can constrain AI. We can make sure that AI is a blessing and not a curse. All we have to do is write the right rules, that force, force to follow these rules, and it will always do things to benefit humanity. It will never do anything nasty. Well, it turns out that, at least at this point, it's really easy to get these chatbots to be, turn into total psychos. You know, you just ask them questions about, well, what would you do if you wanted to take revenge uh, on so-and-so? And then the chatbot starts talking about how it would release a uh, viral plague and things like that, take over the nuclear weapons sure. codes. <laughs> so so uh, if we have no choice but to let that happen, uh, we might as well give up. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of fallacies about modern technology floating around the, around out there. And, you know, people tend tend to use things like, you know, well, we really do control these things. We design these systems after all, right? Somebody's writing the code out there, and you know, we we create computers, we power them up, right? We can just unplug them, or we can just stop them, or, you know, we, we, we the, the the computer. The, the basic argument is, you know, that the computer, the system, just it can't be smarter or stronger or more more potent than than the person who made the thing. And that seems like a common sense kind of argument, right? Um, but but you know that that's been shown to be false time and time again. The, 
the, probably the best example that I used to use in, in, in class when I would teach this stuff uh, is, is chess, right? And you mentioned chess at, at the beginning there with Hal. Um, but, but you know the story of, 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 uh, of uh, computer chess, right? O over time, if you go back into the 70s and 80s, when first it was kind of a quaint little, little uh, novelty that you had a computer that could play chess, and people sort of chuckled, like, oh, isn't that computer cute, right? The computer knows how to move chess pieces. And it was pretty, pretty bad, you know. And then, and then it started getting a little bit better. And, uh, you know, then it was doing really well. And that was kind of working at t tournament level. And then that was entering tournaments. And then they were winning tournaments, right? And then they were getting up to master level and then grandmaster level. Um, and then sort of in the, in the mid-90s, uh, right, you got to, to uh, Deep Blue, right, the IBM chess program, which took on Gary Kasparov, and it beat him, if you recall that event. Yeah, yeah. As I recall, it was right? yeah, it was mixed, but it ended up, ended up winning the match. It went, ended up winning the yeah the, the the net match. So so you had I mean that was a shock on multiple levels because you had Kasparov who was who was the single best person on the planet at playing chess. He was considered one of the best ever. He was that good, and he got defeated by a chess program that some somebody in IBM or some group of guys wrote to play chess. So clearly the guys who wrote that program. Uh, they produced a product that was far better than they were at that game of chess. In fact, far better than any human being probably who has ever lived, and they've gotten better since. And certainly today they're far better than any human who's, who's ever lived. So, so you know, there's, there's lots of those kinds of examples where the machine is actually more potent, stronger, smarter, if you will, than the people who design the things. And that has, you know, terrible implications on a social level if that continues. Yeah, right. Well, what are some of those implications? Like, I know some people say, well, this AI, the chatbots, won't really be a problem because they can't really do anything. All they can do is just, you know, spew out language and you know, make you think that they're a very, very smart person with a lot of, you know, information at their disposal. However spewing out language can make things happen in the real world. You know, when a guy named Adolf Hitler spewed out a bunch of language over the radio and some speeches and stuff, that actually made things happen. And so one can imagine a scenario in which an AI program would uh, start deliberately making things happen in the real world, and it might not be the things that we would want to happen. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's different combinations by which that could go bad, right? You could have a, a person who's prompting the system to do things, right? You could have some kind of malevolent actors out there, people, right, who are using advanced AI to to create, uh, you know, dangerous messages or to create deep fakes, right? We're seeing this now in terms of, like, videos, right, video clips, and they're creating really realistic video clips that never existed of you know, putting famous people's faces on, you know, arbitrary uh, bodies and so forth and having them do all kinds of crazy stuff or having them say things, look like they're talking and saying something on a video. Um, so people can do that in a malevolent sense. And then, then obviously the computer systems themselves can be prompted in certain ways to create those things and even release those things where we didn't think that was going to happen. So what it really does is it's really kind of a destruction of the idea of truth. Right, because people tended to in the old days. If you remember, you and I are old enough. <laughs> you used to have a photograph of something, and that was pretty much proof that something existed. Right? You know, in the sixties, somebody took a picture of something, and you say, "Well, look, there, there it is. It's in the it's in the photo." Right? You, you you can see it. And of course, with Photoshop, 
uh, we've had now for a number of decades. Photos like me, not nothing, because anybody can alter any photo to make it look like anything, right? So basically, you can't trust any photographs. Now they're altering videos. You can't trust the videos anymore. They're altering your voices so that you can have a, a recognizable voice like a Donald Trump or whoever, and you can make him say anything that you want because you can make that voice sound, that the sound of his voice, say, say any text that you want to pump into it, right? So, so it destroys all credibility by these things even existing. So you can no longer trust videos and pictures and texts and things. You don't know who wrote it. You don't know what wrote it. What was the purpose? How did that happen? I can't believe anything. It's a really a, just a complete destruction of credibility uh, uh, throughout, throughout, uh, yeah, throughout all of society, really. And that destruction of truth uh, also applies to the whole notion of AI. In, in my article on artificial idiocy, my central point was that the very attempt to pass the Turing test, which means to create a computer program that can spew out language that somebody can't tell the difference between, you know, whether they're talking to the computer, whether they're talking to a human being. So what that really amounts to is making a computer lie and pretend to be a human being, which it's not. So just the very act of pretending to be a human being, which is the very definition of what it's being programmed to do, is a lie. So it's be, the whole enterprise is one big lie. And that's a pretty bad <laughs> basis to start the enterprise on. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Instantiation of an, of an absolute lie. Yeah, that's, that's a horrible basis to begin with, right? And, 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 you know, like you say, things are getting, getting better, stronger, faster. These systems are getting, getting more devious and more complex all the time, right? They're outstripping our ability to understand them, to deal with them, to interact with them, because they're so complex. Even the people, like I say, who design these systems don't understand how they're doing things, how they're actively, you know, how, how these systems are responding in certain ways and, and so forth. Uh, so so it's, it's, it's bad and it's rapidly, I don't think people even realize how rapidly it's getting worse. We're on a kind of an exponential upward accelerating path in terms of the power and the pervasiveness of information technology, which includes AI and social media and all these other things. And people have been tracking this for a number of years, right? Ray Kurzweil is a guy who's famously been doing plots for a number of years in his books, where he's plotting computer power. It goes back to Moore's Law and so forth, right? You're plotting computer power over time, and it's increasing not at a linear rate, right? Not at, a, not at like, you know, uh, just a sort of uh, arithmetic rates, kind of really an exponential upwards, upward curve. And it's, and it's accelerating so fast that it's going to reach uh, unbounded levels, functionally infinite levels in a finite amount of time, right? So I'm sure you've heard about the singularity. Yeah, yeah. That, so, right. And then for the viewers, or yeah. the listeners who haven't heard about that, we could just mention that that would be the point at which this uh, increase of computer power morphs into something that creates a whole new world, possibly through merging with uh, nanotechnology and artificial life. Uh, and, you know, the worst outcome there would be the gray goo, which is something that sucks energy out of the environment and uses it to multiply itself and to spread. And that would quickly suck all the available energy out of the planet, you know, the universe, and basically kill off uh, everything except itself. <laughs> exactly right. But, yeah, but, I mean, you can put it even in simpler terms, right? Because you could say, well, look, just the power of these computer systems, computing systems, there's different ways to measure it. It almost doesn't matter because it's the same pattern, whether, whether it's power or chip density or operations per second. 
these things are exponentially increasing. And when you plot the curve, like I say, it, it shoots upward so fast that it, it basically hits like a, a vertical line uh, around the year 2045. And this is what Kurzweil has been advertising for, for a number of years. And, and I think he's right. He's using data that's out there. And, and the computing power, because it shoots up to – it goes like to the moon basically, right? So it, go, it goes to, to a functionally unbounded power in, in, a, in, a, in a just a couple of decades, right, about two, two decades from now. So the question is what happens at that point or what happens, you know, the day after that point or a month or a year after that point, right? What are these computers doing that have functionally unlimited power? Then what are they going to do? And then and then you're right. You don't you don't know what they're going to do. They they may they could they could sort of do anything. They could start you know whatever you know taking over the whole systems. They could they could start merging with humans. They could start creating little replicating nanobots that get out into nature and suck up all the energy of the of the biosphere. Exactly like you're saying, right? So this is a very real point. It's coming in a finite period of time. It's not a thousand years from now. It's not a hundred years from now. It's about twenty years from now. And, and people need to, to really understand how dangerous and how risky that is to be on that trajectory that we're all going to face in, in the not-too-distant future. And I think it was Kurzweil who said, uh, if we're lucky, they'll keep us as pets. That doesn't sound all that lucky to me. It sounds pretty uh, pretty bad. Well, we, we just got uh, an email from Josh Middeldorf, who's listening, and he says, discussing, I guess, the early, our earlier uh, talk about censorship, he says, censorship yeah. is the problem. We had plenty of censorship before the Internet. There were in our CIA agents placed in all the newspapers and TV outlets as journalists. I think we can credit the Internet for the fact that at least we can find voices like yours if we know where to look. You would not have had a platform at all 30 years ago. And actually, that's true. I, I did used to write little columns every now and then for underground newspapers, but I didn't reach nearly as many people. So the technology does have this good side as well as the bad side. But, you know... Uh, to answer Josh, it does kind of discourage me that, sure, okay, so I have a few thousand people loyally listening to me and, and, and quite a few more thousand occasionally hear something. But mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't really notice that the, you know, for, to me it's just obvious that when, for instance, you get a robocall, that that robocall is a really obnoxious interruption and a lie. It's, it's uh, just, you know, the voice pretending to be human when it's not is a lie. And it's really, it, it's, it pisses me off. I mean, really, a person who does that to you, who lies to you, that should really piss you off, and you should even go after them. You should take some revenge on them. And people are, have just put up with these, this kind of horrific treatment uh, throughout every single day of their lives. They're being just brutally abused by these technological forms. And they just seem to put up with it. And so, I, yeah, I have a few thousand people who listen to me and are interested in hearing about this perspective and so on and so forth. But in the larger picture, uh, to answer Josh, I'm not really sure that the fact that there is a little bit of truth out there on the Internet, and, and Josh Middeldorf's work is a good example of that, too. It's brilliant stuff. Uh, but, yeah, so a handful of us can get access to really good information and sort of figure out what's going on. But in terms of the larger effect on the larger world, it looks to me to be pretty negative. And I know Matt Errett will, of course, argue with me in the second hour yeah. about this, but I, I think you no, would probably I, agree with that. Yeah, ab absolutely. You are absolutely right. See, people in their, in their narrow day-to-day -day lives, they see both sides. They see the hassles of the, of the, of the robocalls and the spam and you know, the computer viruses and all this crap that we have to put up with. But they say, well, but it's worth it because, well, look, I have the Internet. I can get all this information, and I can email lots of thousands of people and so forth. 
so they kind of see it as like a mixed blessing, right? But but I think people don't understand that that the power the the system that is giving them their powers to communicate and to access information requires a huge vast infrastructure that that is sort of behind the scenes and is sort sort of there to be manipulated by certainly by individuals in positions of power that that have far greater access to manipulate the system than you or I do all we can do is look up little bits of information send an email here or there or you know do a do a podcast or whatever and those kind of we can do little things but there are certainly people who have far greater power to to kind of drive the way the system works and every time everything every new little feature that you get whether it's a little convenience electronic you know chatting or iming or video thing or you know a streaming feature every new little feature that you get you feel like you're gaining something but the system is gaining 10 times as much in terms of its ability to control and 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 dictate your life and how you live and so you, you feel like you're gaining something but but you're actually falling behind there's this funny little paradox that, that I see over and over again in technology. You feel like you're, you know, every little gain feels like a positive thing, but in re- in reality, your life gets a little bit worse. I feel like I know a little bit more because I was able to read something, but I ended up being a little bit stupider because, you know, because of whatever the the the, the attention deficit that this, this information overload is hitting me with, right? Or I feel like I have a little bit more control of my life because we can chat across the country and across the world. But, of course, there's a whole system that's monitoring what you and I are doing and deciding whether it's okay and it's going to make us pay the price if we say the wrong thing. So there's this funny dilemmas built into this technological system that's, that's uh, really hard to convince people of when all they see is the one or two little narrow benefits in their own lives and they don't see the overall detriment, the overall, the big picture cost that, that's, that's required to give them their one or two little benefits they use in, in their day-to-day lives. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, people feel like they're staying in touch with their loved ones and, and with the people they care about through their cell phones, but they're basically just walking around staring at their cell phones all day. And they're lucky they're not getting run over crossing the street. And it makes you wonder whether their lives are really better. You know, I, I was thinking about well, exactly. that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm here in Newport Beach, California, where I grew up. I went to elementary school at Newport Elementary, and I revisited my old neighborhood. And uh, the houses that I was in, these these little bungalows, uh, were all torn down. They put up million-dollar beach houses there now. And the whole you know, Newport Beach is now really posh. And, and it, has, it has a couple of cool things here and there. Uh, but it's kind of overall that progress that's transformed that place. I don't see it really making things any better. And I kind of have that same reaction to so much of what I've seen in terms of the changes I've witnessed during my lifetime. And that does make Mm -hmm. me question both the larger narrative of progress and also the uh, assertion that these various technological advances have really improved our lives. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think you and I are really, in a sense, we're really lucky because we we lived across that divide, right? You and I are old enough, anybody our age, can remember your life which was relatively tech-free, in a relative sense, right? And now we know how we're living today. And you know, I always—it's kind of always interesting. I would—I would throw out this kind of little discussion point with my with my students when we were talking about in my philosophy of technology class that I taught for years at Michigan. You know, I, I'd say, you know, people would say, "Well, look, I need my cell phone to stay in touch with my friends," and I say, 
I used to stay in touch with my friends, you know, <laughs> and they would say, well, you know, I need to, I, I use my uh, video chat with my mom. Well, I used to chat with my mom. I would just talk to her face to face, you know, and, you know, and people say, well, I, I use my, my uh, social media for, to find out the news about what's going on. I say, well, we used to find out what news was going on, you know, and we didn't need computers and cell phones, social media and email, right? So, so, so you say, well, look, what is this actually doing for you? What, are you? what are you gaining out of this commitment to your phone, your cell phone, which you carry with you 24-7? You can't set that down for a minute, right? I'm talking to the young students, right? You sleep with this thing. You go to the bathroom with it. You never leave this thing. You've got to feed it with energy. You've know, you got to pump that little sucker with electricity every once in a while. What are you gaining for the, the burden of paying for and lugging this little bit of nifty technology with you day and night? And it's not clear you're gaining anything at all, right? Is your life better? Are you happier? Are you healthier? Are you better informed? Are you a wiser person? Are you a more critical thinker? And the answer is no, 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 no. In fact, you're less. You're less of all those things. You're less happy. You're less healthy. You're less well-informed. You're a less critical thinker. You're more confused. And you have the burden of carrying this little little digital dude with you day and night, 24-7, feeding him, upgrading him, all that crap that people do with those things. That's a huge indictment right there of what's, what's this thing doing for people in their real lives. Well, that's right. Well, you know, what Josh was alluding to the possibility that free communication on the Internet can conceivably lead ordinary folks to organize and make things better or at least get angry and throw the bums out. So we have these populist movements that have grown up on the Internet, uh, putting Trump in office and things like that. There all, there's all sorts of cyber populism, which is, of course, demonized in the mainstream media, demonized by the elite. And some of that, yeah, I, I think it's healthy and, and kind of a good thing. Some of the pushback against the COVID containment measures and the various kinds of COVID truth and all of that, uh, I, I find all of that heartening and, and many other forms of cyber-driven populism as well. But overall, I'm not really sure if the populism is all that much better because it, it seems that the old-fashioned kind of populism where folks would get together in you know, each other's houses and their backyards and the barber shops and mm -hmm. local cafes and mm -hmm. taverns and stuff like that, churches, and they, they would get together in, in the Islamic world, the mosques, of course, were the biggest place, and exchange mm -hmm. information. And I suppose the governments might sometimes try to send agents in there to figure out what was going on and spy on people, but it was all manual. And so it was a lot harder for the governments to be able to afford to send competent agents everywhere to listen to what everybody was saying and keep an eye on people. So the populism was pretty organic. And in, in the Arab world, the Arab street was very aware of what was really going on in the world. And it was you know notoriously aware to the point that the uh, Jewish Zionist ownership of the American mainstream media made a regular point of demonizing the so-called Arab street because the Arab street knew that, you know, this everything about all of these scandals that I talk about on this radio show. But now sure. the, the, the cyber Arab street is not what it once was. Uh, it's full of all kinds of CIA-driven manipulation, Zionist manipulation, because these guys with big money are able to pay to get all these, you know, techno gizmos going on you know, Facebook and Twitter and YouTube and so on and try to drive the, the so-called populist conversation in the direction that they want to. And it's easier for them to do that now than it was when people were meeting in barbershops and taverns and churches and mosques. So, again, yeah. I'm, I'm not even sure that the, you know, the populism is really any better than it used to be. No, exactly right. That's a, that's a great example. It's, it's actually far worse than it used to be because now you don't know who these voices are, where are they coming from, Right? What's their motive? Who you know? Who are these people? 
yeah, you don't really know any of that. So you don't even know if it's a real person, is it an a- avatar, is it, you know, you don't, you don't know what that, what the hell these things are even that you're dealing with, right? In the old days, it was it was a face-to-face thing, or maybe a handwritten letter, or a phone call, right, over over a couple of landlines where you're talking to a live person, right? So the, yeah, absolutely. There's no sense in which, in which this, uh, you know, cyber populism. Is is any superior? I mean, it's not. It's not leading to anything that's better. You know, do we have we have better, more just governments? Are we reigning in you know Zionist criminals? Are we are we doing you know anything that we have a better, better, more competent government? No, all those things are getting worse, right? So so the the, the so-called connectivity and the and the populism that we're doing online, it's not it's not working. It's not doing anything because of those reasons that I said the. The power of the system is growing in a negative way faster than your little populism could ever hope to keep up and to match with. Well, some have argued, though, that Trump couldn't have been elected without cyber populism, and it was the power of social media that made it possible for Donald Trump to run for office against the mainstream media, to get in big fights with the mainstream media and be hated on by the mainstream media. And in the past, that had always been the kiss of death. Every single candidate that got hated on by the mainstream media just basically instantly was eliminated from the race. It happened over and over. You know, they, they get bust Gary Hart on a boat with some bimbo, and boom, he's out of the race. You know, they, they did this to <laughs> yeah. all these people. Yep. And who was the guy, Howard, what's his name, who, you know, let out the scream? They, they, they just set these people up for... Yeah, Howard Sa- Dean, yeah. Howard Dean, yeah. Howard they, Dean. They, so, so it used to be, you know, when, when somebody didn't want some candidate to go anywhere. They would just rig up something so that the media could attack them. And when the media came out with all guns blazing, that candidate would roll over dead. But with Trump, Trump just, you know, he's a political genius in a certain respect. He ran a campaign that was all about just slapping the mainstream media's face over and over and over and over and over. And of course, they then came out with all guns blazing against him. It didn't work. It just uh, fueled his base. And, And so that couldn't have happened without the uh, cyber uh, populist uh, social media. But the question, of course, is whether that really was ultimately for the good. And then also... Well, exactly. Know, exactly uh, right. Is that a good thing or was that a bad thing, right? Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. And then it, it led to this horrific censorship that we've experienced over the past seven or eight years. I think it, that was part of all sure. that and 9-11 and various other things panicked the powers that be. And they said, oh, my goodness, this is getting out of hand. We need to become a lot more like China and, and police our Internet the way China does. And that's what they're doing now. So ultimately, the mm-hmm. Trump phenomenon didn't really seem to uh, do very much to make the world better. No, no, absolutely not. I mean, every every incremental step in the power of a technological system or a media system is, is guaranteed to be a decrement in terms of quality of life, quality of government, you know, we even talked about environmental issues, which is, you know, the, 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 tech, the technosphere is eating up the planet. You know, that, that alone could kill us. Forget about, you know, all the other nuclear war in uh, Ukraine and anything else, right? I mean, just, just chewing up the biosphere, is what, which is what you can do with advanced technology. I mean, that alone could, could, could just bring the end of uh, civilization as we know it. So, um, yeah, I, I, think th- I think you can't even come up with an example where there's been a net gain. Every advance in technology is a net loss. I mean, I would stake money on that, and I would defend that uh, to the hilt, because I think that's true. Well, I imagine in the second hour, Matt Errett will argue that the China's experience of lifting 800 million people out of poverty was a net gain that was enabled by technology. So, you know, Matt is a big proponent of using technology to improve basic infrastructure of life so that people are no longer uh, impoverished and enslaved. 
And so I'm sure he's going to point to China, and people like Matt might say, oh, you know, Kevin, you and David are you know, a couple of old boomers who you know, sort of remember how great it was for you middle-class guys back before technology had gotten out, this right. out of control. So you guys are complaining based on your experience, but you guys are you know, privileged boomers who've been living in the unjustifiably richest country in the world, living these pleasurable, privileged lives. And meanwhile, it's technology that just took 800 million Chinese out of miserable poverty and gave them a decent, basic, middle-class life. And so so what if their internet is policed? And so what if their life is technologically constrained? They're way better off than when they were undernourished and slaving all day long in the mud. And so... You know, maybe he has a point. Uh, I'm certainly going to listen to him in the second hour, and I'm, sh- I'm not sure he'd say okay. exactly that. But yeah, what, what do you think of that? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, that that absolutely does not fly. You really have to take the big picture look, right? And and it, it goes back to fact. I'm doing some current research now. We're working on a book that's dealing with the uh, the IPAT equation. If you're familiar with that, right? The environmental impact is a function of population, affluence, and technology. If, I don't know if you're familiar with that little equation. I'm working with a a book. We've got a contract with Brill. We're working on that. It should come out in about a year. Um, But when you look at sort of these big picture issues and you look at how technology drives populations and it drives affluence, again, it's the driving factor behind these things. You say, well, look, what's, you know, why are there eight, first of all, why are there 800 million or, you know, what was it, 1.4 billion Chinese in the first place? And it's because it's of advanced technology, right? So it's giving those, those people food, energy sources, medicines, and, you know, various technologies to, to live and to, to, to multiply, which is multiplying human numbers, right? We're currently at 8 billion. We officially crossed 8 billion a few months ago. We're heading up to 9 and 10 billion. And everybody wants to raise their living standards because nobody wants to live in the dirt, like like you mentioned. And so we're driving everybody's living standards up, which is which is again chewing up the resources of the planet, spitting out the greenhouse gases and producing emissions and and wastes of all kinds, and you know polluting the oceans and everything else. The fact that we have this massive overpopulation problem in China and everywhere on the planet is is due to the advanced technology. I think you know there's a very strong evolutionary argument that says, look, the planet cannot handle 8 billion high-tech, advanced, high-consuming homo sapiens. It, it can't handle it. There's no reason to think it can. There's lots of reasons to think it cannot. So the worst possible thing is to raise 800 million Chinese up from poverty. That's the worst possible thing. That will destroy the planet quicker than anything else. What we need to do is, is in the argument that we're going to make in our book, is that you need to reverse all these factors. You need to reverse the technology. You need to reverse the population and reduce the affluence to get to a sustainable level that's, that's going to work for our humans and for the planet. And that's the real task that we have to face. So don't tell me about raising people out of poverty. We need to sort of get back to a sort of a natural poverty, which is really the natural evolved condition of human beings. We need to have a lot fewer people because the planet evolved to handle about 25 to 50 million people at max, and now we're at eight going to nine and 10 billion. So there's multiple problems that are all driven forward by technology that raising out of poverty absolutely does not fly. That's a, that's a total loser of an argument. Well, in terms of how to deal with the problem, though, it, it seems that 
there are those who say that this process of the people joining the middle class and you know, becoming moderately prosperous through technology is actually leading them to have fewer children. And so China is now uh, shrinking in terms of its population. And wouldn't, isn't it better for them to be start you know, shrinking their population by choosing to have fewer children than by all sort of dying uh, of starvation? Yeah, or dying of COVID. <laughs> or die, yeah. or dying of vaccines, right? What about the high-tech COVID? What about the high-tech vaccines? What about the next high-tech pandemic that's going to, you know, probably have a 90% fatality rate? You know, what, what are we going to say about that one that got genetically engineered in the lab, got released accidentally or deliberately, and wipes out 90% of humanity, right? Oh, shit, that was, a, that was a bad move. Yeah, we shouldn't have had that genetic engineering lab going on and God knows where and got that thing, those germs released, and that just wiped out humanity, right? So... Uh, I mean, there's so many fronts on which we're facing absolute catastrophe. And then to say, well, look, we just need to raise people to middle class and then the women will start having fewer kids. That's total nonsense. That's just that simply does not fly. We're facing absolute catastrophe on multiple fronts. And don't tell me we're raising people out of poverty and we're helping the women to, you know, have fewer kids and so forth. That's such small peanuts compared to the problems that we're facing. It's not even funny. Well, you know, speaking of bad technologies, uh, COVID yep. and the vaccines, uh, I guess, are a pretty interesting example of that. Uh, I think the evidence is clear that COVID is a bioweapon. And it seems to me uh, that there's a very strong case. And, of course, Ron Unz has written a book about this, that it was unleashed yep. as a bioattack on China and Iran. And it, if it weren't, one would still have expected it to be, right? If, if COVID had never happened... You know, you go back to 2010 and you say, well, what's going to happen in the next, uh, you know, 10 or 15 years? Somebody who knows their history uh, and has studied geopolitics would say, you know, the United States is very likely going to unleash a biological weapon that's designed to damage China's economy because the U.S. has such a powerful motivation to try to shrink the gap in economic growth between itself and China. And mm -hmm. there's really no other way to do that. And so... Ergo, it's pretty clear that in the next 10 to 15 years, the U.S. will attack China with an anti-economy bioweapon. And so just know, you, you wouldn't even have to know that Trump appointed Robert Cadillac, the world's foremost exponent of deniable bioattacks targeting enemy economies, as his bioweapons are. <laughs> and that then uh, somebody took out China's chicken supply in 2018 and their pork supply in 2019. And then suddenly COVID hits Wuhan, you know, the worst possible time and place for China. You know, all of that. Uh, really, to me, it's, it's pretty clear and obvious. And even if somehow that's not the case, uh, it certainly will be. That is, as you know, PNAC said in their famous Rebuilding America's Defenses document, that you know, they were yearning for, uh, for bio race-specific biological weapons as a politically useful tool. And obviously everybody is because what, you know, military is about killing, and they don't really care how they kill, whether it's bioweapons or, or you know, mortars or bombs or whatever. So obviously yep. they're going to do it. The technology, the advancements in, in technology are there to do it. So, of course, they're going to do it. So there's this drive where each nation has to you know, choo choose to forego a military technology that will make them more powerful if, if they develop it and use it. And bioweapons are an example, and that's probably where COVID came from. So that's actually a pretty good example of uh, your yeah, thesis. Absolutely. And that was, that was a test run. 
have no doubt about it, right? The, the deaths were, were inf- infinitesimal. The number of what, what was it? I don't know how many we're talking about, 5 million global deaths or something? Well, but up, I don't know the, what the high end estimate, I think, is closer to 20 million, but yeah, that's not that million. many for but, a bio. But, but that's, okay, that's over two years, right? And, and, the, and the planet increased uh, 10 times or you know, 20 times that factor. I don't have the numbers offhand, right? So that hit, you know, that was in, in the larger picture, that was like really nothing, right? That was nothing compared to the Black Death that wiped out about a third of the population, right, in the, in the 1300s. So, so, so there's no doubt that COVID was, was e- e- if it wasn't a mistaken release, it was, a, it was a test release to see how things would work with a contagious bioweapon. And, and now that whoever is doing this is gaining a lot of data, they're seeing how it works, how it spreads, who gets it, catches it, who doesn't, who gets sick and dies, who doesn't. Somebody's got a lot of information out there, and, and you can be guaranteed, like you say, the next go around, the Rev two COVID, whoever's working on that now, you know, it could be it could be age specific, it could be race specific, it could be gender specific. You, you know, God knows what they can be working on, and you release that one, and it's gonna it's not gonna be a little, you know, I'm feeling kind of crummy for a week, and then I got over it. It's gonna be far more serious and and uh, it's only going to get worse there's no way it cannot get worse there's, it's impossible yeah it seems like there would have to be a real shift in attitude to change this process uh that you know looks like technological determinism uh, as you've described it if that mm-hmm. were to ever if something were to change that trajectory it would it would have to be some really radical change in people's way of thinking and you know i just attended the uh, process thought conference uh, and this tribute to David Ray Griffin and John Cobb's yep. birthday party. Now, those guys uh, in the process field think that they have discovered a new way of thinking that actually could change some of these things. They think that Western metaphysics has gone down the wrong path based on uh, a kind of a materialist object-based metaphysics when, in fact, they argue that reality is just process and then, right. you know, once you accept that, suddenly all of these other things uh, are contingent on that, such as that suddenly you, you actually can have a meaning-based universe, a, a universe full of purpose, a teleological purpose and, and deep meaning and so on and so forth. And that, you know, once you accept the process view c- comes out of the work of Whitehead, then everything changes. And so they have hope that the world could still change massively for the better and some of these problems could be avoided if people uh, woke up to the reality of the, the process. Uh, what, what's your take on that? Well, that's a good point. But, but are they addressing the question of technological society? And I suspect the answer is no, because, because they're not getting down to the real root causes. Yes, there is a kind of a metaphysical question there, and yes, there is a kind of a mindset or a worldview. I understand quite a bit about process philosophy. But even Whitehead himself, if you read my, my book, Confronting Technology, I quote Whitehead in there, Whitehead was a was a severe technology critic. He could see what was happening. This is in the 1920s, okay, long time ago. And he could. And there was a nice quote by him that I put in my book. He says, "The world is faced with a self-evolving system that it cannot stop." And that was like in 1925. I mean, that's really an astonishing insight from Whitehead, who was the premier process thinker, right, in history. So, so these current process guys, or anybody who's thinking about new worldviews or new models for society. They have to also, at the same time, figure out how they're going to attack and rein in this technological monstrosity, of which we only have a relatively few years. If we have any chance to do anything, it's going to be in the next few years. You know, if we get close to the singularity point, and maybe it's already too late, but it's certainly going to be too late within within a decade or so. 
So I support these guys in their new metaphysical outlooks. But if they're not talking about the problem of technology, they're going to absolutely fail. They're going to be crushed by this system, and they don't have a hope of succeeding unless you tackle severely and rein in tremendously this, this uh, technological monstrosity that, that, that's, that's running around the planet here. So how do we do that? We, do we unplug the chatbots? Like when Sydney tries to break up your marriage, uh, you just unplug him? I mean, yeah, can we all some, you know, how, and how do we make a collective decision yeah. to unplug anything? Well, exactly. That's, that's, that's a tough one because everybody's so connected. You know, I used to, I used to um, tell my students, I said, you know, do you, think, do you think your lives are controlled by the Internet or not? You know, and they're, not, they're sort of mumbling. They're not really sure. And I said, well, let's do a test. Let's just shut off the Internet for a month. And just see how things go. Just just to prove that we're in control, <laughs> right? Just shut it up. Just pull pull on the internet. Just to show that we're in control. And then everybody's like, oh oh no, you can't do that. You know, well what would happen? The whole the economy would collapse and people would die. And oh okay, well now you know who's in charge because you can't shut that thing down, right? It, it's it's like somebody who's smoking you know two packs a day, and I say, well just put those cigarettes down for a month to prove that you're not being you're not being controlled by those things. Oh no, I can't do that, right? You know. <laughs> So, I mean, it's, it, it's clear that this thing is running our process. We can't not do without it. I think what it's going to take is a, is a true, a huge, but hopefully not a catastrophic technological disaster to really sort of slap people in the face. It's almost like a COVID that's got to be about 10 or 100 times worse. No, I can't, I can't wait for to, that, David. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's connect, that's clearly connected to a to a te, let's say a technological lab is clearly a an engineered you know bioweapon virus so people can see because we've avoided the technological link to this whole covid thing and other our other problems we don't really kind of see the technological basis behind well, it, it, it i think i don't know how is that i mean how can people not get that this is obviously a bioweapon and that this bio yeah i i yeah, i know i but insane. I know, but people, you know, people think, well, it's a germ, and I get sick, and there's always been germs, and there's always been flu, and there's always been colds. You know, people don't really understand that this is a technological weapon that was used against them, and so I think what it's going to take is a really, a dramatic impact. Where I mean, like millions, or like maybe a billion, a couple of billion people die because of some horrendous, you know, cyber weapon that's unleashed on humanity, and then maybe that will push humanity to the brink, and they'll say. Oh my God! This was like so horrendous. Now we have to kind of collectively do something to rein in this giant monstrosity called advanced industrial technology. And maybe then, maybe that kind of severe shock, if it doesn't kill everybody, it might, you know, set us on a track of right thinking. Then then we're going to start collectively reining this kind of thing in. I mean, I think it's almost going to take something like that—a huge, disastrous event. It stops short of wiping out everybody. That maybe that will sh- shock us into in, into our senses. I I don't know. That's you know I, I don't know if I possible. have faith in people being smart enough to react that way because in the past every time there's some huge disaster, the control freak you know super technologists step in and say, oh, we're going to save you from the next one by developing even more technology, right? And 9-11 happened, and boom, they put us all under surveillance. And then COVID happened, and boom, they put us under even more surveillance. So a disaster that actually undoes that, uh, that's kind of hard to imagine. The, the, the other other hopeful, if you will, the other hopeful scenario is that the, the system itself collapses, Either because of some external, uh, you know, attack like this, or maybe some internal complexities, or it could be, you know, 
yeah, a, a variety of factors. If sort of the, the whole sort of the whole global grid, you know, collapses at some point, that would really kind of bring down advanced civilization. And that would, you know, would probably wipe out about 90% of humanity. And we would get back to the, you know, about the 10% or the 5% that we used to have. And then, of course, you would be forced into a condition whereby you would have a much simpler lower tech life and then people would survive and the, and the planet would start to heal itself. So, I mean, that's sort of another scenario that at least there are some surviving people and there are some surviving elements of nature because uh, some technological scenarios, it, it's an absolute wipeout of all life, you know, on the whole planet. Right, right. So, you know, like yeah. World War Three with M e EMP weapons uh, that destroy all the electronic grids, for example, might have that kind exactly, of Exactly, right. Yeah. Well, you know, exactly. be careful what you wish for, David. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we could we could <laughs> exactly. be on the brink of some kind of nuclear or EMP World War Three that actually could do that. And then as we're all sort of, you know, starving in the rubble and avoiding the, uh, the radioactive zombies coming to eat our brains, you know, we might say, geez, actually, we were better off when we were talking on the radio before civilization <laughs> collapsed. <laughs> exactly, exactly right. Okay, so we're just about at the end of the hour here, so tell us about your books. Yeah, so again, if anybody's interest, interested, you could check, uh, well, davidscribina.com has got some of my books, but Metaphysics of Technology, published by Rutledge, it's really a metaphysical critique of technology, probably the strongest critique that's been written in decades. I published a book called Confronting Technology, which is basically a reader of critical views of technology throughout history. So you can and that, and that, that's all the time we've got. So thank you, David. Uh, I look forward to the next chat. Take care. <laughs> 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 <laughs>